Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's interesting to kind of see your avoidance tendencies, you know, like, 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 what do you like, what are your sort of go to avoidance strategies? You know, do you do you just fully say no to something? Do you do you only do part of something, the part that's more palatable to you, but don't do the other part? Do you uh, substitute the thing that you're afraid of for something that's less fearful, but probably less effective? Like, for example, a, a small business owner I, I interviewed, he told me that he was very uncomfortable networking in, in sort of schmoozing and also selling, frankly. Uh, and he was he owned a small travel agency and the problem was is that for him to get a sort of a foothold in his business he he needed to build relationships with people in his community because ultimately they're going with him because they trust him and they know him but he was really uncomfortable in these situations so he would often default to uh, posting on Facebook or email blasts, which, by the way, isn't bad, but it's not a it's not a substitute for what he needed to do and what he was really actually afraid to do. Um, sometimes we'll pass the buck. We'll have someone else do something that we probably should be the person doing, you know. And then sometimes we'll just rationalize and say, you know, this really isn't that important that I, you know, that I learn to to speak up in meetings. It's it's not that important that I, you know, um, I don't know, start doing more public speaking. Speaking or 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 be assertive to a colleague who is really undermining me. You know, they'll change their behavior or whatever it is. We, we come up with a rationalization when, in fact, it it probably would be important. You know, useful, helpful. You know, um, it, it would be important for me, but but we rationalize it away. So the, the bottom line here is that there's a variety of ways that we avoid, and sometimes it's important, I think, to look ourselves in the mirror and kind of a, kind of call it out for what it is. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Andy, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of your publicist who sent me uh, a copy of your book, Reach, which was all about stepping out of your comfort zone. And based on the fact that I read the book, um, I really see you as a social scientist. So I think I want to start with one of my favorite questions for anybody who does social science research, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact has that ended up having on your life and your career? <laughs> That's an interesting one. Uh, I, well, I went to a... Uh I went to a high school, which was a private high school in the Boston area, and I only had 50 kids in my class. So it's hard, like in terms of groups, it wasn't sort of your classic high school, at least how I've, you know, kind of watched teen high school movies. Mm. <laughs> it was very different. So I don't know. I, I think most kids in my high school were fairly well-rounded. We were all encouraged to sing in the glee club. Even, you know, the captain of the football team was on the glee club. Uh, I did all sorts sorts of activities. I played some varsity sports. I, I, I did a lot of different stuff. So I'm not quite sure if I really would have fit into a group. Hmm, interesting. What did um, being in such a, a small environment high school wise teach you about uh, human relationships and human behavior? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I think that for a lot of certainly through high school and college, I was not like the curious social scientists that 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 were you know thinking of. I was more just really interested in you know doing well in my classes, getting good grades, achieving, and then hanging out with my friends. It was pretty simple. Mm -hmm. uh, I was not. I, I did. I took Latin for six years in high school. I went to a, you know, fancy, I went to Brown University, so a fancy college. I, you know, took courses and so on there. But I, I wasn't, I have to admit, you know, looking back, I wasn't tremendously intellectually curious as a high school student or as a college student. I, where I, and, and frankly, I had no idea or ambition to become a professor or a social scientist or anything like that. I, I think it kicked in for me um, at about age, tw uh, gosh, 22, I think. Um, after college, I wasn't sure what to do. 
uh, you know, with my life or even with the next year, I didn't know what to do. I, I knew I liked school. I liked learning. I, I thought I was good at it. I felt comfortable, frankly, in my comfort zone. And so I decided to, to do a master's degree uh, in international business. And so I had studied international relations in college. The one thing I knew is that I kind of liked international cross-cultural stuff. I didn't know kind of what to do with it or, you know, what direction to go in. But I knew I knew that. So I decided to go to Columbia University. They have a they have a pretty cool program as a master's program at the School of International and Public Affairs. I thought it sounded really interesting. Um, and, and I was doing international business, frankly, because I didn't uh, it's kind of sounded good. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't take one single business course in college. We didn't really have a business program. I didn't take a psychology course in college. Nothing of, of, of it's funny because when I talk to my you know students now, whether my my MBA students or my undergraduate students, they're always shocked to hear that I never took a course in college. Any what you know, any, 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 even closely related to what I'm teaching. So, so I went to Columbia and about, I would say about like maybe two months in, I started to realize, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I don't know anything about international business. I feel a bit like a fraud. I, I, or at least I want to kind of know more about it. So I, I decided I'd like my, I'd like to try to actually try it out. And so, um, I got an internship in New York city with a, with a small company with the hopes that that company would send me to France. Uh, I'd always wanted to go to Paris when I, I went, I went abroad to Spain in college and, um, I kind of had my eye on France. I thought it was like a really cool place. I didn't know French, uh, but, but I, I was always pretty good with languages. And so eventually this, this, I did the internship during my first year. I took a leave of absence from my master's program. I went to France. I learned some French the, uh, summer before I left and I got this job in this, um, in this small marketing research firm in Paris. And now the job itself was, I mean, no offense as my kids, like my, I have an 11 and a 13 year old now, and they're always saying no offense, but when like, absolutely they mean to offend you, (laughs) 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 but, uh, but, um, but no offense, but, uh, the, uh, the job in, in France was like deadly boring. We were doing uh, marketing research studies and customer satisfaction studies for industrial companies in Europe. And I don't know, maybe for some people that's super exciting for me, it was like incredibly boring, but it was a really cool opportunity to be in France. And I started becoming super interested in human behavior, frankly, like cross-cultural and also human behavior just from sort of immersing myself in this environment. Um, I, I had a, one of those old um, Mac SE computers. This dates me. This is in the early 90s. Mac SE computers, which is like a box for listeners who probably have no idea what I'm talking about. It's like a, looks like a boxy little computer with a tiny little screen. And I would keep notes on there. So I'd do my work, my regular work, and I'd finish it fairly quickly. And then I'd, then I'd keep this secret like um, set of notes about what I was noticing at the office, just like, you know, f- just like a diary about like social interaction and cross-cultural interaction. And it it was just like, I was soaking it all up and just really just organically interested in this stuff. So, so I came back to, to Columbia and luckily, you know, I, I had one more year and and it, Columbia is a great university. There's tons of stuff there. I, I found my way to Columbia business school. I discovered that this field I was interested in was, was social psychology and organizational behavior. And I started taking classes in it, which totally was not part of my program or my ambition or intention going into it. But that's how I finished it out. I, I, I met someone who ended up becoming a really nice mentor for me. And I started becoming excited about the idea of doing a PhD. No one I knew was doing this. Everyone was going off and getting jobs, you know, as you might after a master's program. It was a, it was a practical master's program. But I went and, and I went uh, to get a PhD. And so I went to Harvard. And there was one guy I really wanted to work with. His name was Richard Hackman. He was he was he he actually died a few years ago, um, early tragically um, of lung cancer. But he he was just the smartest, most interesting guy. He was he was studying symphony orchestras and cockpit crews and hospitals and all these really super practical areas. And he was at the Harvard Business School and in the Harvard Psychology Department. And 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 so I did my PhD with him. And so I was in a joint program in the Harvard Psychology 
psychology department in the Harvard Business School. And um, in, in there, that I just I just started. It was basically I realized my calling. Like this is what I was super interested in. And and so so that's that's where my interest. Um, that's where that's where I became interested in in, in social science and human behavior. It wasn't it wasn't from college. It wasn't from pre college. It was it was really post college. Huh. Interesting. You know, that raises a couple of questions. Uh, one, I feel like I see this pattern over and over in my life where somebody graduates from college and because they have no idea what they want to do, that actually ends up being often the reason that they're able to find a calling. And I see people you know, like myself who thought they knew exactly what they wanted to do and pretty much hated every job that they ever had. So I'm, one, I'm curious why you think that's the case. Uh, and two, I would want to ask you, you know, as a parent and knowing that there are parents listening, what would you tell them if they have kids who don't seem to have a clue, uh, especially if they're kind of, you know, at the age that you were at when this was all going on? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I think that in my life, at least, I think I was so fixated and focused on achievement. And, you know, I did achieve um, that that I, I never was really able to discover what I was passionate about. It was only once I kind of got off that bandwagon, you know, trying to get good grades and achievements and so on and so forth, that I was able to actually, you know, sort of step, it's almost like coming out of the dark and like opening my, imagine like being in the dark for like years. And, and then all of a sudden you walk out and there's like this sunlight and like you're like opening your eyes and like can't even take it all in. You know, that's, that's like a metaphor, but that's like how I think it was for me. And so once you got off the achievement bandwagon, at least for me, that's when I was able to start discovering what I, you know, what I might be interested in, frankly, and following my nose. Um, you know, for, uh, it's, it's hard to sort of give blanket advice for people, uh, who are parents, um, or who are young professionals and so on. But, but I do believe that, that, um, that, that, you know, fi- finding finding and pursuing something that you might be excited and interested in is is you can never go wrong with that. <laughs> you know, at, at, at any age, uh, and I, I think that's that that's absolutely the fact. I think some people, um, you know, go for the should instead of the want. You know, I should do this. I should I should pursue this career. Uh, I, I'm expected to pursue this career, this avocation, or whatever. But 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 I think I think where you're going to probably do your best work and feel most authentic and be happiest and, and probably ironically most successful is when you pursue the want. Mm-hmm. And so, so, uh, you know, given that you're a professor and you know, you probably know a bit about my work, there's no way we're going to get out of this conversation without me asking you about views on education. Um, <laughs> one, what are they? What do you think is wrong with it or, or broken about it? How do you think it needs to be changed and, and updated to be relevant to the world we live in? And, and why is it taking so long to change? Uh, so that's a big question. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, that, that my ambition personally has always been to make education more practically relevant. Um, and so, you know, I find that, so I'm, I'm sort of housed in, in a, in a piece, in a little segment or a neighborhood of the educational world that actually I think is, is a, is a, can be a nice inspiration for other elements of the educational world, which is at a business school. And frankly, I'm at a business school that happens to be connected to a liberal arts college. So at Brandeis University, we're a, you know, a top liberal arts college that happens to have a business school. And so we're constantly aiming to sort of integrate the classic liberal arts where I do think there is value and then the practical education for people to actually step into the real world, be able to learn to integrate what they're learning across disciplines to sort of discover themselves, find themselves, find a way of being practically effective in the world, what they're, you know, finding their mission, their calling and so on, and to really blend sort of the world of practice with a world of, you know, I don't know, higher learning in a sense. So I think a lot of education um, sort of goes to one end of the extreme or the other. I think you see education that is super intellectual but not very practical. I think you see education that's super practical but doesn't have that sort of inter- intellectual theoretical 
underpinning. And I think blending the two is the key, but it's easier said than done. And I think that, that I think my, my view, and maybe it's, I'm sure it's a biased, I mean, we all have biased views, right? But I sort of see, I see a lot of professional schools actually at the forefront of this, yeah. you know, professional schools like mine, we sort of have a foot in multiple worlds. Um, and, and in a sense, our customers, so to speak, are come from multiple worlds. You've got the parents, you've got the kids, you've got the employers, you've got the accreditation bodies, right? You're all these folks coming from multiple perspectives and the trick of the school is to integrate everything in a substantive and effective way. So I don't know that that's sort of my kind of big picture take. I'd be curious where that fits into what you think. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of the notion that everybody should go to college. Um, I question part of the value of my MBA at moments. Um, I think that I think for, for what I got in return for it, it was incredibly overpriced. But on the, the flip side of that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if my MBA hadn't turned out unex- in, a, in a way that was unexpected, like graduating into a recession. So I, I have sort of mixed feelings. It's this weird sort of serendipity. But um, I, here's here's my, my big sort of, of gripe is that I'm concerned that it's an, a one-size-fits-all solution right now, um, that we don't recognize multiple intelligences, you know, like you – if you take a student like me and, and you put me in an environment like Berkeley where I was, I did terrible in school. Um, but I think that is largely the byproduct of a lack of interest in what I was doing and a complete mismatch between talent and environment. And, you know, I think that you're forced to choose from options that are put in front of you as opposed to seeing the possibilities that are around you. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's one of the challenges, actually, that people, uh, you know, I'm starting to focus a lot of my work on the challenges that young professionals have and stepping from sort of the world of education to the quote unquote real world. And I think that's absolutely one of the challenges that in college, you've got a menu. Now, aside from the fit issue that you just mentioned in college, you've got a you're, you're in high school, too. You're sort of choosing from a menu of options. You're given the syllabus. You're given a case study in business school. You're given the data that you have to analyze. But in the real world, you're not given the data. You're not even given the problem, maybe. You know, you're not given the menu. You have to sort of sculpt and choose and select and craft your path in a way. And so I do think that a lot of professional schools uh, and colleges might inadvertently, by creating sort of a safe predictable environment make people ill-equipped for stepping into the real world which is a little bit different from what you were talking about but you know i think it's another sort of like um it's another uh, critique in a way yeah well from your vantage point what is the future of work going to look like ah good question um I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's it's going to be uh, a process of, as it is already. I think of of per- personal and professional reinvention, uh, you know, a- across the lifespan. You know, I see people having you know multiple careers, inventing, reinventing themselves in multiple ways. Um, I see education becoming more flexible, uh, where you're getting different bits of education. It's it's almost like you know the old idea of eating three big meals a day. Uh, people often say it's much healthier to have smaller bites at various points in time when it makes more sense. Similarly with education, maybe education is going to follow in that path. You're not going to sort of be blasted or given a fire hose to drink education from at one point in time and then kicked out into the real world. Maybe education will start to be better integrated with your real world so you can leverage it and learn the things you really do need to know in order to thrive professionally throughout your lifespan. So, you know, I think that I think flexibility reinvention will, will probably be the, the the norm now you know we're talking about sort of like the the sort of um a, a certain swath of the population too you know i, I don't I, I don't know sort of um I, I guess that's sort of the the playground that i play in in terms of like you know higher education i'm, I'm not i'm not as sure about uh you know elementary in in high school yeah well, let's do this. Um, let's shift gears and really get into why you're here, which is to talk about this notion of stepping out of your comfort zone. But I want to start by asking, what is it that prompted you to explore this idea? Like what planted the seed for it? Yeah. So so um, I think there, there, there are a couple of things. Um, I, th- I, th- I think the first is the fact that I um, – I have always struggled uh, stepping outside my comfort zone, um, you know, throughout my life, um, whether it was in speaking up in college, uh, um, uh, going to networking events after college, um, giving public speeches. I remember the first time about 20 years ago, my first job as a professor was at the University of Southern California in L.A., and uh, I was asked by uh, – 
uh, big uh, entertainment company. I think it might have been Fox at the time. Uh, if I would give a keynote speech to their to their employees, lots of them, hundreds of them, and, and I don't think they thought I was great or anything. I was just at the beginning of my career, but I, I just happened to be a business professor at the USC Business School, and I was when I got that. Now, by the way, nowadays if I get that request, I'm all over it. <laughs> like I, you know, that I do that a lot now. That's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was terrified. Like I remember looking at my calendar, you know, seeing a big blank page. It was you know paper calendar. And like, and like saying, you know, lying to them, basically saying, you know, I'm really sorry that date's just not going to work for me. Like, please, like hoping and praying that they wouldn't say, oh, we're flexible, you know, <laughs> like, uh, so, so I was terrified of that. You know, um, when I first became an author, an author writing for the general public with my first book, which was 2013, it was, um, a global dexterity. Uh, I, I started realizing I had to start doing social media and I was not on social media at all at that point. Um, in fun, in, in fact, I used to make fun of my brother for being on social media. I thought it was like pointless in a sense. And, and like, I had to learn it from scratch and like even learn to like toot my own horn a little bit. And it, that's like super outside my comfort zone. So I think throughout my life, I've always sort of struggled with that and also been very attuned to the struggle, like, like not numb about it, but very self-conscious and self-aware about it. So that, that's one sort of reason that I wrote this book. But the other big reason is that when I wrote Global Dexterity, which is, as I said, was about acting outside your cultural comfort zone, I got a lot of feedback from people, from readers saying that, you know, this stuff is cool. It's actually helping me in other situations than just crossing cultures. You should, you should consider writing something, you know, with broader appeal for the, for, for just simply about acting outside your comfort zone. And and when, when people started saying that I, I, I had a bit of an epiphany, which was that I had already been doing some academic research along the lines of that exact topic, uh, for, for several years, in fact. And so, you know, I combined what I had already done. I did a whole bunch of new interviews for the book and, in, in, in integrated other people's research. And that, that's kind of how the book was, plus my own experience, as I alluded to before. And that's how the book was born. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, great. Well, let's do this. Can you give us a overview and a framework for um, how to step outside of our comfort zones by basically kind of giving us a brief overview of each of the sections of the book? Sure. Yeah. So the book's basically about why, you know, why is it hard? How do we avoid doing it? And how, how can you be more successful? And, you know, I, I really wanted to make this book a book where the how can you do it more successful was not like a throwaway, but it was like the meat of the book. And so that that's, 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 that's important to note. Um, and, and for the book, I, I spoke with, in addition to the research that I had already done, uh, I spoke with uh, managers, executives on entrepreneurs, small business owners, uh, and then I expanded, police officers, um, tough love therapists, actors, uh, students, priests, teachers, rabbis, um, even a goat farmer. And that's it's kind of a funny backstory on that one. Um, but um, lots of people, in lots of situations. So, you know, uh, public speaking, selling something, networking, pitching and promoting yourself, being assertive, you know, all sorts of situations that these people experienced. And so, the first part of the book is about why is it hard, mm-hmm. um, and I and I found it it all boiled down to five different five different things. I call them psychological roadblocks, um, and and I actually find this this part really um, useful for people, and I and I feel kind of proud that it's that it's that it's useful for people because it kind of gives people language to understand why something's hard for them. Of course, it's hard, you know, to step outside your comfort zone in one of these situations. But why? Um, and so, what I find is is five reasons. Um, and by the way, it doesn't you don't have to experience every one of these. You know, sometimes it's just one. Um, authenticity. Uh, this isn't me. The idea that this isn't me. I feel like an imposter. Uh, th- that that's the first one. That's a big one. Um, a second one, likability. The, the worry that, that that people will hate me or hate this version of me. Let's say that if I'm acting more assertive than, than than I might normally, or if I'm delivering bad news or whatever it is, that people won't like this version of me. Um, competence. The the idea that I, that that I'm afraid I'll I'll look like an idiot or a fool. And, and by the way, other people will see that, and I I have a sense that they'll see that. So there's a private and a public side of that. So you got authenticity, likability, competence. A fourth one is resentment. You know, I, I feel frustrated. I have to do this in the first place. I'm uh, as an introvert, I might be resentful that I have to make small talk to get to get a job or to 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 get a promotion or even to be put on a, a plum assignment at work when when my other colleagues can just so easily make small talk with a boss. And you know, why should that matter in the first place? Uh, that's resentment. And then finally, morality. I didn't I didn't find this sort of everywhere, but there was many cases where people felt stepping outside their comfort zone kind of felt wrong. Uh, I actually opened the book with a story of a young woman who had to fire her best friend from her startup. So, so you got uh, authenticity, likability, competence, resentment, and morality. And you know, again, it's, it, it doesn't mean you're going to experience every one of these every time, but but even one of them can be hard. And I've started to give um, workshops at companies around these issues, which has been really super interesting to do. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and and I, and I'll tell you. As part of the workshop, I always try to ask, like, which which of these five are the most prominent? It's always kind of the big three, authenticity, likability, and competence. Those are the ones that keep popping up. So so that's the first part of the book. Why is it so hard? Okay. Can I ask you a question about the why is it so hard? Yeah. Um, How did it differ across people in different uh, areas? Like, you know, you mentioned policemen, goat farmers, et cetera. Like, how did it differ between these different groups? Like, did they have different things that made it hard for them to step out their comfort zones? Yeah, I don't know if it was by – it's a good question. So I don't know if it was by by groups or really by 
sort of tasks. And in some ways, it's almost like the interaction of a person's personality, the particular task they're doing, and then maybe sort of nested in the profession. So, for example, the police officers, um, I interviewed a whole bunch of police officers, I hung out at the police station. And I actually did a ride along one day where we, well, I don't say we because I didn't actually do it, but I was with them with a bulletproof vest and everything as they performed um, 20 evictions. These are eviction officers, evictions. Uh, they evicted families and individuals from their homes in, in, in a major metropolitan city. And so I got to experience that very closely firsthand to see that. And so that's an example of something. I don't think the police officers were, were worried about their authenticity. I think they were definitely worried about their likability, though. And I think that the, I think that the notion of morality popped up for them. And they often were trying to kind of push it down by talking about the greater good. Like, like, why are we doing this? If a family is, is very sympathetic and, you know, so, so, by the way, some, some people when you, they're being evicted are, are rent evaders and they, they like the police officers feel that they deserve what they're getting. But there are many other people who are just down on their luck and in, in really sad circumstances. But the police officers, you know, some, they, they felt on, on the one hand, they needed to do their job. You know, there, there's also a landlord, by the way, whose family might depend on the rental income, right? So there's multiple sides of this. But 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 they also did feel pangs of guilt or in deep sympathy and sometimes even questioning the morality of what they were doing. So that plus the likability issue might have sort of popped up for police officers. But then again, you know, what if it was a junior police officer, very, you know, not seasoned one, maybe authenticity pops up or competence. So, you know, they haven't stepped into their role yet. You know what I mean? So I think it's a, it's a complex set of factors from like maybe your tenure in the profession, your personality, the task and so on. So what comes after, um, why it's difficult, how we avoid it. (laughs) I think how we avoid it is, which is, it's kind of like, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of see your avoidance tendencies, you know, like, 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 what do you like? What are your sort of go to avoidance strategies? You know, do you do you just fully say no to something? Do you do you only do part of something, the part that's more palatable to you, but don't do the other part? Do you uh, substitute the thing that you're afraid of for something that's less fearful, but probably less effective? Like, for example, a, a small business owner I, I interviewed, he told me that he was very uncomfortable networking and, and sort of schmoozing and also selling, frankly. Uh, and he was he owned a small travel agency. And the problem was, is that for him to get a sort of a foothold in his business, he, he needed to build relationships with people in his community because ultimately they're going with him because they trust him and they know him. But he was really uncomfortable in these situations. So he would often default to uh, posting on Facebook or email blasts, which, by the way, isn't bad, but it's not a, it's not a substitute for what he needed to do and what he was really actually afraid to do. Um, sometimes we'll pass the buck. We'll have someone else do something that we probably should be the person doing. You know, and then sometimes we'll just rationalize and say, you know, this really isn't that important that I, you know, that I learn to to speak up in meetings. It's it's not that important that I, you know, um, I don't know, start doing more public speaking or 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 be assertive to a colleague who is really undermining me, you know, they'll change their behavior or whatever it is. We, we come up with a rationalization when, in fact, it. It probably would be important, you know, useful, helpful, you know, um, it would be important for me, but we rationalize it away. So the bottom line here is that there's a variety of ways that we avoid. And sometimes it's important, I think, to look ourselves in the mirror and kind of a, kind of call it out for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, this is going to sound funny, but how do you avoid avoidance? <laughs> How do you avoid avoidance? Well, that's exactly what I wanted to figure out. It's a great way to put it. Uh, how do you avoid avoidance? Because, you know, avoidance comes from the fears that we talked about before, right? The anticipated fear of being incompetent, looking like a fool, feeling authentic, feeling anxious, feeling afraid. That's why we avoid it. Avoidance is self-protection, 
right? Um, you know, and, and I think it's it's biologically uh, based in a way. It's like you know, our ancient ancestors would 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 feel fear and, and run from a bear, and, and it was probably good that they did uh, because that fear and that avoidance probably uh, enabled them to live another day. <laughs> but but if we're, if we're, if our bear, so to speak, is you know making small talk or networking or whatever it is, you know, I, I think that's where you have to try to. Uh, put strategies into play to avoid avoidance. And that's, that's really what the meat of the book is. It's, it's what you can do to avoid avoidance, to actually nudge yourself to take a leap. And that's, that's what I call the, the three seeds. Uh, would that would now be a good time to, yes, to chat about those? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So these, these are the three C's. And I have to tell you, if you're, if you're dubious about, about tactics that all have the same letter, <laughs> it's, it's really just a way of kind of neatly organizing it. This comes from some serious research. I mean, I've, I did lots of interviews. I've done lots of academic research. And I also should say, I work one-on-one with people in these situations as well, helping them step outside their comfort zone. What I found it all boiled down to was three things. And what I mean by it, I mean the ability to to nudge yourself to take that leap, to avoid avoidance, as you said. So the first is conviction. Conviction is is um, is something we all have or can locate, or it's a resource we have. And if you don't have it, by the way, maybe this isn't a situation for you to step outside your comfort zone. But but find your source of conviction. What's your deep sense of purpose here? Um, but you know, it's not going to erase your discomfort, but it will give you the motivation and drive and you know sense of purpose to fight through it. And for some people, it's professional. You know, I hear all the time, I, 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 this is really hard for me, but I actually really want to be a manager or I, I've always dreamed of starting my own business or being an entrepreneur or being a leader or whatever it is. That's a professional source of motivation to help you fight through that discomfort. Sometimes it's personal. Like for me, I have to tell you nine times out of 10, my conviction, and I actually literally, I use what I preach here. I, I do this on myself. I, I think to myself, you know what? Uh, it's often personal for me. I, I have an 11 and a 13 year old. I'm often throughout their lives now. I've been trying to coax them a little bit outside their comfort zones when I, you know, at, at an age appropriate level. It, and then I look at myself in the mirror, and if I feel like I'm avoiding something, I feel like I'm not the, you know, kind of dad that I want to be. Really, frankly, that's how what it boils down to. And so, so that's like a tremendously powerful source of conviction for me uh, in my life. So, but, but it could be either both a combination, whatever it is, find it and embrace it. And, and that's, that is, that is a really powerful tool that you have at your disposal. So number one is conviction. Number two is customization. And I'd have to say this is like the most exciting sort of slash unexpected thing I found in my research. It's really cool. Actually, I, th- I think um, it's the idea that there's no one size fits all for doing any of these things. Um, in the analogy I like to use is like a tailor, like, you know, you buy a pair of pants or a dress or whatever it is, and you, you kind of tweak it to, to, to fit yourself. Um, you know, you might, you know, might tuck it in here, take it out there, whatever it is, but, but you're sort of customizing it. And we customize a lot of things in our lives. And, and this is something that we can absolutely customize stepping outside our comfort zone. It might be through your body language. It might be through literally a prop that you bring to the situation. I could give you an example. It could be by staging the context. It could be with timing. It could be even the literal language that you use. Um, but, 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 you know, I think oftentimes we feel helpless in situations outside our comfort zones, especially those that make us afraid, like we talked about earlier, but you have more power than you think to, to tweak it and customize it so, so that it fits you. Um, so that's a, that's a big one. And that's number two, that's customization. Mm-hmm. Number three is clarity. Um, clarity is the idea that when we're stepping outside our comfort zone in a situation that, that, that makes us afraid. And again, I, I guess I'm a visual person. I, I always, the image that always pops in my mind and it is right now, actually in my mind as we're talking about this is, is like a ship at sea and that ship is ourselves and our emotional state in a way. And it's rocking back and forth. And I think when we're in a situation that's scary, we have the tendency to, have a really strong rocking motion. It's, it's catastrophizing. We think of the worst possible case. You know, I'm going to give a public speech. I'm just going to, I'm going to faint on stage. I'm going to make a complete fool out of myself. So therefore I'm not going to do it. Or you might go to the other extreme, which is I've seen a lot of Ted talks. If, if I'm not 
is good or better than the very best of those. It's just not worth doing. So we sort of go from one extreme to the other in our, our catastrophizing and idealized, unlikely best case scenario kind of loses focus on the, the middle ground, the, the more much more realistic, uh, grounded perspective, uh, which I call clarity, which is, you know, I don't know, in this case, it might be, uh, I'm probably not going to give the best TED talk ever. Why, why would I be expected to do that? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do fine. I probably won't faint either. You know, I, I probably won't be my, my very best, but I'll, I'll bet I'll learn and I'll bet next time I'll, I'll do a little bit better. You know, that, that sort of grounded perspective I found uh, distinguished along with the other tools, the people who are successful at, at, at taking that nudge and, and, and avoiding avoidance as, as, as you put it. So, so conviction, customization, and clarity. Um, those are the three key factors. And, and what's key about them, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, is that, and this is important, is that the power here is in taking the leap. Because if you're able to take the leap and avoid avoidance, that's when learning can occur. And what I found time and time again from talking with people across all these contexts, people would say something like this. They would say that they, that they had these one of two epiphanies, sometimes both. Number one, this isn't as hard as I thought it was. <laughs> Number two, I'm actually better at this than I thought I was, right? And if you think about it, those are super powerful learnings because that breaks that avoidance cycle and starts to actually create a different, more positive reinforcing cycle where you're going to try it again. Uh, but you're never going to get there unless you try it. And that's why those tactics are important to nudge you. Hmm, interesting. So I'm wondering if we can wrap this up by taking a look at it through a somewhat practical lens, um, like an example, maybe in my own life or in the life of somebody, you know, like, could you walk us through a case study of, you know, conviction, clarity and, and confidence and how you've seen it and able to, to take some to allow somebody to take a leap? Sure. Um, well, I, I mean, there's so many examples. I'll, I'll give you. A, I'll give you an interesting example um, uh, of a, a woman who emailed me, a reader of my book, uh, and she she said she she really liked the book. I never met her, and it, this this is actually not in the book because I it happened after the book came out. And she said that she was terrified uh, of making small talk and meeting people. She's pretty socially awkward and shy, uh, and she'd go to parties and get-togethers, and she'd just have a miserable time, and she didn't want want to be like that. And she wanted to go to the parties. Like she had a social impulse in a way. Right. But she just couldn't like get it together. And she'd be sitting on the couch, kind of like the wallflower. Um, she, she used conviction, uh, to, to sort of will herself to go to these parties in the first place and find something she could do to try to have conversations with people. She told herself that this is something that she wants to be able to get better at. She wants to have a fuller life. She wants, she, she, she doesn't want to feel so alone in her life. And that even though this is going to be scary for her, this is something that is really important for her to do. And she's going to give it a go. She then came up with a customization tool, which I thought was genius. She, she happened to like photography and she, she decided she was going to try to bring a selfie stick to get togethers. And if you think about it, it's a it's such a great prop because she would bring this selfie stick and people would say like what is that? Right? And so automatically there's a conversation starter there. And it also gave her kind of a role. A role is sort of like the selfie stick expert in that situation in that moment to play. And it was an authentic role because she knew how to use it. It was her and she liked and frankly she liked doing it. So that was also pretty authentic too. And it kind of loosened her up. She'd start talking about it. She might even laugh. She might show them how to do it. Uh, and then they take some pictures. And then they, the person might say something like, Oh, can I can you know, can you send me that? What, what's my text or what's my email or whatever? And now you can hear, you can see how this is this tremendous catalyst for her and kind of opening up her life. Uh, clarity, I think, also came in. She didn't sort of note clarity as much in her email to me, but I, I imagine that that you could imagine if you step inside her world that, that she had to gain some degree of clarity uh, in her situation, even to get up the courage to go to these events in the first place, right? To be able to not fall off the balance beam and just say, you know, you know worry about what um, that that she'll never be able to to make any connections with anyone, and that she's a loner, and so on and so forth. But but I thought that was a you know a great example of someone who came up with a very clever way to step outside their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Well, uh, this has been really cool and very, very eye-opening. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes something or somebody unmistakable? Um, ooh, good question. I guess what popped in my head just now is maybe because we've been talking about it is is this notion of authenticity and being themselves. I think that you know I think that there is a big strong push and pull, and I see it with my kids. You know, I see it myself in my career. I see it in a lot of situations of kind of fitting in. In, in kind of like like fitting in slash not standing out um, and and I think there are a lot of forces that that push us in that direction but I think I think that the only way that you're going to be unmistakable is to kind of resist that uh, but it's hard it takes courage and oftentimes stepping outside your comfort zone but I'd say that that would be it to, to try to somehow some way discover and then ultimately try to be that uniquely you uh, aspect of yourself which which will uh, be unmistakable and distinguishing but oftentimes i think it's hard for a lot of people to do mm. awesome well where can people learn uh more about you uh your work and uh, the book yeah so i have a i have a uh, i have a website um which is www.andymalinsky.com so my name is spelled a n d y M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And I have all sorts of stuff there. I write for Harvard Business Review pretty regularly and Inc.com and Psychology Today. And I got tons of videos and quizzes. And just it's, I, I try to make the site like a fun place that I would want to kind of visit in a sense. So that's kind of what it is. And there are links to my books and to social media and so on. And now after several years, I've become actually quite comfortable with social media, having been very uncomfortable before. And I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and in Facebook. Um, I have an author page and Twitter. And so, yeah, I, I, I love to connect, connect with people around these ideas. So, so, so I, I, I welcome you to, to, to come visit. Great. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.